We are uh, in the book of Luke, so go ahead and start turning there. Oh my God, cheers and everything. Luke chapter 5 is what we're going to be looking at this evening. Uh, last week we took a week off and we looked at the Trinity, um, and we're working on getting a recording of that to you if you'd like to pass it on to friends. Um, don't hold your breath. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll work on it. So. Well, friends, uh, we've been looking at the book of Luke, and one of the things that we've been commenting on is just sort of trying to put ourselves in the place of uh, seeing Jesus, following Jesus, as a first century person would have. Uh, Who is this guy that all of a sudden has come on the scene, and uh, almost seeing it with sort of fresh eyes again, and uh, and that's been kind of fun to do that. Um, Remember the radical call to discipleship that that Jesus is saying, we're going to see two examples of that today, where literally he, he's been talking, people have been kind of following from a distance, observing, um, but always able to just sort of take it or leave it at any time they wanted. Today we're going to see a couple of specific examples where he says, all right, now what are you going to do with this? Are you going to follow me or not? Are you going to leave everything and come after me, or are you just going to drift back home like uh, others are going to do? So today we'll look at some of those examples, and hopefully the Lord will speak to our hearts and challenge us, because he still does challenge us in that way, or he's supposed to still challenge us, us in that way. So we'll consider that. Let's jump in. We're going to look at uh, five or six different stories that are given to us in this chapter, and it begins with verses 1 through 11. So we'll read that. It says, Now on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, and they followed him. Now, in verse 2, or excuse me, verse 1, just before the beginning of verse 2, it says that the setting for this is the lake of Gennesaret. Uh, same place that in different places in the Bible, different Gospels, is called the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias is a city up in that region. Uh, Galilee was the name of that region. So we're talking about the same place. Uh, the northern portion of Israel, and uh, up in that area, there's sort of like a a um, circular-shaped body of water. They call it a sea. It's not really a sea. It's a lake, really. Uh, But because it is so large, waves do form on on this sea, quote-unquote. That's why it's sort of taken on that particular name. Uh, And all around that circle are towns and cities. Uh, And I was describing them in some of our previous studies. If you kind of picture it on a clock, um, from basically the 8 to about the 2 were Jewish cities. From the 2 maybe down close to the 5 uh, were sort of Gentile lands. And a lot of what we're studying in the Gospels 
happens in that area, in and around that Sea of Galilee. So here now, Jesus, who lived in and around that sea, he was a little more inland than actually the sea where Nazareth was, Nazareth was but he had left that. We looked at that in chapter 3, chapter 4. Uh, he had left that area, and now he is beginning to make his home in a place that is called Capernaum. We'll look at that a little bit later on, uh, I believe tonight, actually. So uh, here he is now down by the sea, uh, and he encounters a group of people. Uh, we read that, in particular, it's a fellow by the name of Simon. It says that in verse 3. Over in verse 8, it tells us his name is Simon Peter. And so uh, we commonly know of this Simon as just simply as Peter. He will have his name a little bit later changed by the Lord, sort of reflecting the work that God was doing in his life. And we'll look at that when we come to it. But going back to verse 1, it says, Now on this occasion, or one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, w- he found himself standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So here is Jesus teaching. People are gathering, they're listening. Remember, we've said this already, that when Jesus taught, there was something different about the way in which Jesus taught. People said that he taught with an authority, whereas most of the rabbis of his day, or maybe you might even say all of the rabbis of his day, they tended to not really put themselves out there. And so they would say, well, such and such a rabbi says this. So if you don't like what I'm saying, blame him, sort of thing. But Jesus spoke with an authority. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And he spoke with sorry, and it really drew people to him. And I'm sure it wasn't just that. Obviously, he was probably a pretty good Bible teacher that Jesus was. And so uh, he taught in such a way people were gathering. And it says that Jesus was by the sea there. So notice what he does in verse 2. It says, he saw two boats by the lake, and the fishermen had gone out of them, and they were washing their nets. Now, at the end of, on the Sea of Galilee, it was, you were better off um, fishing at night. There was a better chance you were going to have a good catch at night than in the busyness of the day and, and the heat and all that. So they would go out in the evening, then they would take their catch, do what they're going to do with their catch, and then they would have to wash their nets. Failure to wash the nets uh, would eventually cause damage to the nets and things like that. So here now Peter is off, he's close enough, he's watching his boat. He didn't put the chain on it or anything, uh, like his bicycle. But he's watching his boat close enough. Seems like he's paying attention to Jesus, and he's doing his work. He's cleaning the, these nets here. And Jesus goes down toward the water, and he asks if he can get into, actually it seems like he begins to climb into Simon's boat. Now, Simon is also from Capernaum, where Jesus has sort of relocated. You're not talking about like New York City. You're not even talking about Ewing Township, where uh, the chances are you probably know everyone that grew up in your age group or something like that. Um, you're talking about a small little town and village here, so he probably is aware of this Jesus guy. Um, so it's not that unusual. That, and there you go. We saw that last chapter. Yeah, so he knows who this fellow is. Thank you, Mark. Uh, and so it's, this isn't one of those like, you stealing my boat guy? You know, kind of thing. But Jesus asked to get into it. Now, the reason why Jesus wants to get into it is because he wants to push out a little bit into the water raise up, everybody now can see him, because he's out a little bit away from everybody, and then also the amplification of his voice. And so he says, hey, uh, two boats there, they're washing, verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he, he, Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Now here is Simon being asked by the Lord to do something relatively small. Simon could have said, no, nah, man, I got to go. I'm sorry, i got things to do, i got places to be, I'm just going to finish this up, and I'm heading out. Uh, and I can, No. And what do you think would have happened? John. 
If I borrow your boat to push out a little bit, you know, who knows? I mean, obviously the Lord knew what was going to happen here. But just the kind of breaking it down and into the natural for a moment here, Peter could have missed his opportunity, so to speak. You know, and for a variety of reasons. I don't want to be hassled. I don't want to be bothered. I wonder even if some, it's sort of just a small little thing, and so it's not really that important. You just want me to put out a little bit, and you know, it's not that important. I'm not getting involved with that. Had he said to Peter, hey, I want you to come and be Billy Graham or something, well, that's important, right? So I think about it in the opportunities that the Lord gives us to serve him, and sometimes things are beneath us. And we look at things, you're like, yeah, that's too small for me. Billy Graham needs a replacement, I'm there. First grade needs a teacher, no, that's not for me. You, you know you where I'm going with this? So here is this small little thing. In Zechariah chapter 4, it tells us to not despise the day of small things. Now that's in reference to the temple being rebuilt, and it looks like a piece of junk, and it's not really going anywhere, and they're thinking, this thing stinks. And Zechariah comes on and says, no, don't despise the day of small things and that it's going to be a glorious thing. And I think similarly, the Lord would have the exact same thing in our lives. That those small things that we think aren't worth it, and I don't have to give my best effort, and all that kind of too, the Lord would say, no, you give your best effort in those things, and establish that you're faithful in those things, and he opens up greater opportunities following that. Interesting, notice what happens here. It, in verse 3, he says, put out a little from the land, and then he sat down and he taught them, And verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now let's put out into the deep. You see how those two kind of compared with one another? First is a small little thing. Now they're going to go out into the deep. And he says, put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night. Now the word master, some of your versions even say rabbi, teacher. That's really, it's not like, it should be teacher really or rabbi. And I think, and and I don't know, I'm not in his head here, but I suggest that he's reminding him, you're a teacher, I'm a fisherman. And we had a bad night, and all my friends already made fun of me, and my wife's going to kill me because I don't have any money to bring home from the night of working, and I'm frustrated, and I'm tired, and I just want to go home, and I know fishing, and you don't know fishing, you know, and all these things. So he says to a master, we toiled all night and we took in nothing, But notice, then he goes on and he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, as Mark pointed out and others, Peter had observed the Lord. He'd heard him teach on other things. He'd seen him do amazing things. But now, this is the call. This is where, and I was describing it to a student today, and it was perfect. I was at the College of New Jersey, and I was down in this like pit area of the student center, and there's sort of an upper area up here with a big wall, half wall, that separates us. And what I described to him is, there are folks that are standing up on that upper level there that are sort of looking at the wall. They're listening to what Jesus has to say. But it's very easy for them to kind of slip away and go off where they want to. But Jesus is calling us down into this pit area. And I think that's what he's going to do here with Peter. He's going to take Peter to that place. Peter, you're not going to be able to just follow me at some comfortable distance. You're either going to have to be all in now, Peter, or you might as well not come anywhere near me, Peter. And so he says to him, go out and and let down your nets. Peter says, come on, I don't really feel like it. We've toiled all night. But then he says, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And I think the first lesson that Jesus is going to try and teach those disciples that will go deeper is this idea of, first off, teachability, 
Are you able to learn something from someone you think you know more than? I know more than you do, Jesus, in fishing. And humility. Because you really can't be teachable unless you're humble. And so he, he says, you know what, I will. At your word, because you say, I have a lot of respect for you. You don't know anything about fishing, but I have a lot of respect for you. At your word, I'll do it. And so he uh, does that. And when he had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. Now remember, they didn't fish with fishing rods. Uh, they would throw the nets in and uh, now the nets had filled up. And their nets uh, were breaking. Um, coming off of a night of bad fishing, uh, bad. think of it this way. Uh, you're trying to serve the Lord, do ministry, and you're failing. I was reading a book, and as a matter of fact, our, what's our resource of the month for this month? A Memoir of Grace of Chuck Smith. And the first two chapters chronicle the first roughly 20 years of ministry um, that he was in. And they were really, really sad years of ministry. Nothing happening. People not get it, coming to know the Lord. Constant problems in the churches that he worked in. People never satisfied uh, with him. Uh, the denomination never satisfied. Very frustrating. So much so he came to the point where he said, that's it. I'm done. Because he had to get a part-time job. He was doing pretty well. And the place said, you know what? You're really good at this. We'd like you to come in full-time. We're not going to need you part-time anymore. It's either full-time or nothing. And he went home. He drove the long way home. And he thought about it. And he finally decided, you know what? I'm going to leave the ministry. It's not happened in any way. 20 years. You know, it's not anything. And he almost quit. And the Lord just impressed upon his heart some things. Read the book. You'll enjoy the story. Uh, and boy, I'm glad he did because uh, he's had a great impact on so many of our lives um, in those last 40-some years of ministry. So anyhow, what if Peter was discouraged? Fishing, My fishing stinks. I'm no good. I can't get this job done. I just give up. Never go out again. And Jesus had said to him, uh, go out into the deep and, and put out your nets. He would have missed this amazing catch that they uh, just had there. So just another way I think that we can think about it. Also, when the Lord tells you where to fish, you tend to have a very good catch. You know, it's a doing ministry as the Lord would direct and guide and being uh, spirit-led and guided by the Spirit, even not just in our personal lives, but as we minister as a church. You know, we could get into technique and form and habit and this is the way we do it and i see that church down the street or that church on the internet and they're really successful and they do it these ways and they fish in this little corner of the sea of galilee so if we do that we'll be good too and what's what do we know to be the case that's not the way it works but as the lord directs us and the lord guides us and we're in tune with his holy spirit then we find we have a great catch anyhow it continues that they got so many fish their nets uh, were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, this is James and John, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And that neat sharing ministry, there's plenty to share. Now both boats are sinking, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, let's go into business together. You know, we can make lots of money. You know, everything has changed in Peter. Watch what happens here. Uh, it's no longer about this fishing, really. He says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What does that have to do with what's happened here? Jesus didn't say, you know? Yeah. What? Absolutely. I don't. Tell me. 
I want to know. I want to know. Okay. I mean, that's what I take. Sure. Right? So now he's convicted because I almost didn't go, but I did go, and look what God did? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I fished in the same exact spot all night long. Dude, I didn't get a a fish. I didn't get one. I can't even feed anybody. And you're telling me I already cleaned everything, you know? Sure. And now I'm going to go back out there again and do the same thing, and and I'm going to get different results? And he does. Amen. I think it's very awesome. It's very awesome. It's so cool. Well, yes, ma'am. I think it might be um, partly his unbelief because he's been following Jesus for an entire year. And he's like, okay, you're a cool guy. And he's finally like, I, it's been a whole year and I never noticed this before. Mm. Well, yeah. That's true, too. Yeah, yeah. So he knows that God's in this, uh, and he's in the presence, and, and he doesn't measure up, and, and he realizes he's unworthy. And I think, again, from the perspective of this being ministry, and, and another place Jesus says about being fishers of men, but from the perspective of this being ministry, this success in the ministry doesn't cause pride in Peter, but it causes great humility in Peter a sense of unworthiness, you know, and I think that is key, uh, because it's not about us, and it's not what we're doing or accomplishing, it's about what the Lord is doing, and the amazing things that the Lord is able to do, and so anyway, he, he immediately recognized his sinfulness, and he says, go find somebody more worthy, go find somebody better, we're going to see a little bit later on, Jesus is going to say, you're the exact type of person I'm looking for, I look for people that know they have nothing to offer, but they can simply be instruments that are used, hands. My, my daughter and I, we were dancing the other day. I stood behind her. My son sang the song. I stood behind her, and I did the hand motions for her. And, and I was good at it. I was like, you know, I had a, she was doing one of these and stuff like that. You know, and uh, she tried to do it with me. She wasn't as good. But that's how we, the, it works with the Lord. You know, we just stand there, and we're the instruments, but he's the one who does the work. Well, it continues. It says in verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, that they had taken. Remember, so much that two boats were sinking from that many fish. It's pretty remarkable. And I think, the, I don't know, but I think the Lord just was laughing. You know, and they're probably excited, and this is awesome, and then they were a little nervous, and scared. he's just laughing and, and having a great time watching what's going on here. Don't you think, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, don't, but don't you think, too, that, I mean, he overfilled the boats, right? Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. All right, verse 10. And so so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were the partners they talked about. So Jesus said to Simon, again, that's Peter, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men, he tells him. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Everything that previously meant the world to Peter and James and John now it just sort of faded into the background. There's nothing wrong with working and being a fisherman and all these sorts of things, but God had put a calling on Peter's life, and everything else just sort of faded to second. 
And, and specifically, he said, look, you, I want you to come follow me, and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And Peter was like, great. I'll go wherever you tell me to go, and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Because God had got an impact of his heart. All right, let's move on to the next story. This is the story of Jesus cleansing a leper. It, it goes to verse 16, so I'll read it. It says, now, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face, and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show himself or yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses has commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So the story in this case, now we have a man, it says, and remember, uh, Luke is a doctor, you know, so he is specific in his diagnosis here. He says that this is a man that is full of leprosy. We have other examples in the scripture, in the gospels in particular, in which it says that a particular fellow had leprosy. Uh, Luke is careful to point out here that this man had was full of leprosy. That is that the stages of leprosy were very advanced here. Leprosy was a skin disease. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read about it. All sorts of different skin diseases that today we wouldn't necessarily refer to as leprosy. This particular form of leprosy that this guy has is more akin to what we would think of today. It had the, the ability or the effect, I should say, of damaging the nerve endings uh, on a person. Um, so if, it's full, if he's full of leprosy, Parts of his fingers would be missing, parts of his nose, extremities, those other areas uh, would be missing on his body. He would have lived this way for quite some time. Remember, as soon as a person, I think we shared this recently, as soon as a person was diagnosed with leprosy, there was a fear that they were contagious. Um, so physically, they were sort of put to the side. Spiritually, there were all sorts of rules about it to protect the people from becoming unclean, all these things. So spiritually, they were put off to the side. Um, they no longer would enjoy the touch of other human beings. Uh, and life became hard and lonely and very, very sad, uh, quite frankly, uh, for the leper. And so here is this guy now makes his way toward a city. Now, that's not unusual. They had leper colonies, if you want to call them that. Um, but they could make their way into the city. Uh, but they had to cry out. They had to cover their mouth. They had to cry out, unclean, unclean. They had to stand downwind from people. They had to put up with the faces and the people looking and sort of trying, the, the nice adults trying not to stare. The kids clearly staring, probably saying, Mommy, what's the matter with that guy? Uh, and stuff like that. So they had to put themselves through all that. Uh, and so typically during the day, they would keep themselves off. And then they'd come in later in the evenings when the sun is crowded or whatever. Here, though, this guy, it seems like, you know what, I don't care anymore. And so he goes into the city, and he begins to cry out. He sees Jesus, he cries out, and he runs to where Jesus is. None of this, uh, I'll stay 10 feet away kind of thing. And it says that he fell at the feet of Jesus, or he fell on his face there, and he began to beg the Lord. Beg. Desperate. Which, by the way, is another thing that the Lord looks for in his disciples, that were desperate for him. And so he cries out, he says, Lord, if you will, make me clean. Another time, uh, somebody comes to Jesus and said, Lord, if you will. And he said, if I will? You know, and he was just like, if I can? In this one? 
if you will, you can make me clean, he said. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jesus then, he stretches out his hand and he touch him, touches him and says, I will be clean. Now, I find this fascinating, and maybe it's just me. But look back, if you will, to uh, chapter 4, verse 39. This is the story uh, Mark referenced a moment ago about Simon's mother-in-law. And she had this fever, she was sick. And in verse 39, it says, Jesus stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose. Here now, in John or Luke chapter 5, verse 13, why didn't Jesus look at this guy and rebuke the leprosy, and it would go? If there's, he can, obviously can talk to sickness and make it go away, however that works here. And if there's anybody you wouldn't want to touch, and you'd rather get away with the just talking to the sickness and having it go away, it would be a guy that's fully advanced in leprosy. And yet here we see that Jesus goes and he touches this guy. And I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why did he choose to touch this guy when he didn't have to? And I think the answer is, is because this guy needed another type of healing, not just a physical healing, but here's a guy who probably hadn't been touched in many, 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 many years. And so Jesus comes, and the guy must, his, I'm sure the whole audience, their breath was taken away. <gasps> and I'm sure this guy, his breath was taken away. As Jesus put his hand on what? His shoulder his head or something, he put his hand on him and it essentially said, of course I want you to be made well. And he says, I will be clean. And so, the, immediately, immediately, not some gradual healing, but immediately the man was healed. Now notice what Jesus says though. He charges him, I command you, tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering, etc., etc. Now in... Uh, Leviticus chapter 14, in the book of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus has to do with the idea of the giving of the law. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, there are specific rules for a person that had some form of a skin disease, and it could just be some minor thing, no big deal, but let's just be on the safe side. They were put out of the uh, sort of the community just so nobody else would get infected. And then if a person thought that they were healed, they would go to the priest. The priest would look, he would make his determination. You can read it, it's all in Leviticus 14, very, very specific. To the point you're like, okay, I get it, you know, I hope I don't need to know any of this. You know, and uh, then the priest would determine, yep, you know what, you're clean. You can go back and live amongst the people and everybody's safe and, and so on. So that's what Jesus is referencing when he says, go and show yourself to the priest, make the offering and all that. Leviticus chapter 14 here. Now he also tells him, don't tell anyone. Now, here's a guy that was fully advanced in leprosy. And now he's fine, and he shows up at home again. You know, it's, people are going to know. But Jesus says, don't go and tell people. And, and I think the reason is because Jesus' primary focus for coming was not to do healing and miracles and draw all sorts of attention to himself. Uh, and so he doesn't really, that's not what he has come to do. And so he's saying, don't tell him. But obviously the word gets out anyway. Yes, my friend. Um, that particular thing was never done before, was it? This sort of a healing? Well, the, the, like somebody going to the priest and saying, hey, I've been healed, and then they had to do, like, that particular part of the law was never executed. Now, I read that. How do, you, how do we know that, though? I, I'm, I don't know. I suspect it never I mean, was. That, it kind of makes sense, because, like, why would, he, why would he say, don't tell anyone, and just show up at the priest? <laughs> you know, 
don't know. I don't know. I know. I did read that though. Yeah, it's not dogma, but it's fascinating. You're saying that nobody's ever healed of leprosy in the Old Testament? No, like I don't want to hijack. Go ahead. You're fine. Go ahead. In that passage, there's a specific thing for. Right. Yeah. Apparently, I read that like that was never done before, and this is like the first time, and it's kind of like a mark of like, uh, like oh well, this is something weird. Like this has never happened before. So. But uh, Old Testament, they told one of the generals was fighting and had a skin disease. Uh, mm-hmm. the and, and the people in the New Testament, the Jews, would know all these Old Testament stories. Mm-hmm. Even your high priest. Sure. So they would have to know that somebody mighty powerful has come. Yeah, well, yeah no yeah. doubt. So, so word is getting around now about Jesus. Um, but notice what Jesus does, verse 16. Because Jesus is a hero now. He's a rock star and everyone knows his name and limos are picking him up and stuff. Uh, but notice what he does in verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places to play, to pray, I should say. Um, not to play. Um, I find that interesting because Jesus is God in the flesh and he felt a need to go pray. I'm full of the flesh and I don't find the time or make the time to go pray. And I bet you don't either. And so I don't feel so bad saying it. Just me? Okay. So if Jesus needed to go and pray to get away from the hustle and the bustle and all this, but I'm too busy. So what did Jesus do often? We read in the scripture. He got up before the sun was even up to do it. Come on, man. I didn't come here to feel bad about myself. You know what I mean? We're challenged in that way. You know, but sometimes I think we need to challenge ourselves. Jesus did what it took to get that time away with his Father. And again, if he, uh, God in the flesh, needed to have that time with the Father, then surely we do as well. Right? All right, you all said right, so tomorrow morning I'm calling it. Five Are you awake? 5.15. You got a phone in that shower? I'm calling. Oh, okay, all right. All right, verse 17. Now, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So Galilee is the northern region. Jerusalem is in the center, but off to the side. It was sort of like the city region. So it's Galilee, Samaria, Judea. All right? They're the regions of Israel. And then um, Jerusalem was sort of a city within Judea there, almost at the southern end of Samaria. So notice it says that uh, from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem that these Pharisees and these teachers had come. Just interested in, in seeing what Jesus has to say? No, they're probably coming to check on this guy. You know, a lot of talk is going around about this new rabbi. We're the official people. We decide who's okay and who's not okay. So they're gathering to hear this. And one of those days as he was teaching, it says all these people came, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now he's God. Isn't the power of the Lord always with him to heal? Well, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, it saith, I'm quoting King James now, so <laughs> this is important. It says, uh, well, i got to give you more context. Uh, let's see here. 
When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his home, he taught them in the synagogue. They were astonished. Where does this man get this wisdom, these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? And are not these his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not these sisters of his with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And so there's a a sense of which their unbelief is is sort of hindering his ability. So now Jesus certainly can overcome anything he wants to overcome here. But in the context of what we're looking at here, uh, where it says, "And and their power of the Lord was with him to heal, you're going to see that people come in that are showing great amount, great amount, I should say, of faith that come here. Now, I do not believe that based on our faith, we can be healed and you don't have enough faith, brother. And, and people literally have said about Johnny Erickson Tata, if she just had a little more faith, she could get up out of that wheelchair and walk. Now, that's just bothersome to hear because she's a great woman of faith uh, and she is a, para, a quadriplegic and um, I don't think the two go necessarily hand in hand with one another. So we need to be careful with where we go with that teaching. But that is true. That's right, Paul even. Not just Johnny Erickson Tata, but Paul had this thorn in the flesh that he prayed and the Lord told him, you'll be all right, my grace is sufficient. Yes, sir. You know that some of these stories may not be in complete chronological order. That's correct. You think that maybe they came up because this guy that had leprosy all his life showed up at the temple and said, I've been healed and... You know, I. that makes sense. Um, I have it at home where this fits chronologically in, and I'll check it. I was going to bring it, and I didn't, because it wasn't really referencing okay, it much. Yeah, so I will get it next time, I promise. Uh, so anyway, verse 18, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus here. Uh, I'll keep reading. Um, and when he saw their faith, he said, man your, sin, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately the man rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So, a couple things that really stood out to me was, here's Jesus, he's teaching these people. Uh, you have these Pharisees that are gathered, great crowds are gathering, so crowded that they, these guys who really want to get to see Jesus because they love their buddy, they can't even get in to see him here. I appreciate the great lengths these friends go to, the great length these friends go to, so that their, their buddy could meet Jesus. And then I think about my own life, and wonder, do I go to similar lengths to introduce my friends, my family, my loved ones to Jesus? And, and sadly, the answer is no. 
You know, there are times I just, I'm not getting into this conversation here. I'm too tired. I don't feel like dealing with it or whatever. I don't go to great lengths to see my friends, my family members come to the Lord. I certainly don't carry my buddies on their bed to go see the Lord. And oftentimes, oh, it's too crowded. Oh, well, we tried. You know, maybe next time he's in town. No, but they go up on the roof. Now, the roof, flat roofs there, so it's more of like a patio thing. The homes weren't like our homes, so they're not chopping through wood and all these things. They're digging through sort of a clay type of thing. And they, they dig in and they, they create a hole. Now, you can imagine the scene here. And I think some of like the Jesus movies that are out there do a really good job with this particular scene. There's Jesus sitting in this living room, quote-unquote, all these people packed in, and then suddenly, you know, the sheetrock dust or whatever starts like just falling a little bit, and, and there's rustling up there, and there's noise, and the sermon kind of comes to a stop, and then suddenly light comes beaming in, and then on a rope is this guy. Now, And we don't even know if this guy is like, would you stop it? Leave me alone. I don't want to do this. This is terrible. You're going to drop me, or whatever. But here is this guy being lowered down dramatically, you know, slowly down, and laid there in the front of everybody. And he's looking around, he's seeing all of these important Pharisee and teacher people that are there. Uh, But these guys, man, they had a heart. They believed. Notice what it says in verse 20. It says, and when he saw their faith, not necessarily the faith of the guy that got healed. He may have been in on this or he may have been against this. We don't necessarily know. But clearly the faith that it's talking about is these guys that would go to any length to see their buddy healed, come to Jesus. Uh huh. Yeah, I do. And so Jesus uh, sees their faith and he says, Man, your sins are forgiven. Now, it doesn't say this, but I wonder if his buddies are like, We don't want his sins forgiven. We want him healed. You know, <laughs> we brought him for healing, not confession, you know, and stuff. And so he says, Man, your sins are forgiven because Jesus sees the real need that this man has. Now, it doesn't say anywhere here or anywhere else in the Gospels, but for whatever reason, tradition has it that this man's uh, ailment was the result of some form of a sexual sin. I have no idea how they've come to that. But if that's the case, his real need is forgiveness of sin. Either way, his real need is forgiveness of sin, whether that caused his injuries or his paralysis or not here. But Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven. I also think Jesus is picking a fight in this scene. I think he's purposely doing this because he knows that the Pharisees and the, uh, these teachers of the law have gathered there, and they're not going to like what he has to say. Notice immediately, they begin to question. Now, Jesus can see right through into their hearts here, certainly, but are they bad poker players? Is it immediately on their face? You know, one of these things, that, is it just in the, all of us could have observed it, or is it something that he alone was able to perceive? Either way, he does perceive it, And it says, they say, that this guy speaks blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. That was my point. He goes on, he says, and Jesus perceived their thoughts, and now he answers them. They didn't actually ask questions, but he answers them. And he says, why are you questioning in your hearts? Who is this guy? What gives him the right? Why is he blaspheming? Only God can forgive sins. All these questions. And so then Jesus asks a great question. He says, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? And you guys answer the question. What's that? What's easier to say? 
I could easily say your, your sins are forgiven you. You know what I mean? You don't know what's going on. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. But if I said get up and walk and you haven't been able to, now you'll be able to say, yeah, let's see if you can get up and walk. And if you can, then I'm right. If you can't, then I look like a fool. And so Jesus said, what's easier to say? Or if we want to do it in the opposite here, what would be easier to prove? Him getting up and walking or that I've forgiven him? In that case, him getting up and walking. And so anybody can say your sins are forgiven here. And then he says this, he says, but so that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority on the earth to forgive sin. And he turns to the guy and he says to him, get up and I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And so the guy gets up, picks up his bed and goes home. And the, the point is, and I can also forgive sin. You know, you can't see that happening, but I can do it. And so the guy, he does, he picks up and he leaves. Now, notice it says, amazement sees them all. Now, does that mean the Pharisees? Does that mean the teachers? Typically, we wouldn't think so, um, just based on their track record in other places here. Uh, but clearly, the, the crowd that has gathered, whether that includes the Pharisees or not, I'm not sure, but the crowd that has gathered, they're amazed. And notice it says, and they glorified God. Now, I know Jesus is God, and Mark got into this with uh, the uh, Trinity uh, conversation here, and what's the differentiation between the Father and the Son and, and the Spirit and so on here. The, I, the point here is being made, they're not necessarily glorifying Jesus here. They're amazed by him, but the glory is going to the Father. They're, they're still trying to figure out, and as we are, ultimately our full understanding of what the Trinity means here, but the glory is going to the Father. And if we look at Jesus from the perspective of a minister, a servant, someone the Father is using to accomplish his purposes here, the glory goes back to the Father. Jesus was all about, it wasn't about drawing people uh, to himself and honoring him and all that. He always pointed people to his Father, which is what we're supposed to be doing. Not pointing people to ourselves, this great miracle that I've done, come back tomorrow at the same time and I'll do more and you know, put my name and my face up on a billboard here. The idea was constantly pointing people to glorify God. And so it says that they did. They glorified God, which is a good sign that this is a healthy ministry. Obviously, it's the Lord. We know that it is. Briscoe. Anybody remember Stuart Briscoe? Some of maybe the older folks might. No? No? Nobody? Stuart and Jill Briscoe? They were great. He was a great Bible teacher out of a... Did he, is he the one who said, you think about that? That was a different guy. Anyway, uh, he was a great teacher. Um, he's still alive, I think. Um, so he is a great teacher. And he would say, you know, his wife, she was also an excellent teacher. Um, and she liked to um, put herself in the scripture. I think actually I learned that desire in my teaching to kind of put myself, remember the time, the story of the VW bus, you know, and I told that one Sunday morning and there wasn't a VW bus, but just sort of put it in kind of our thinking here. And, uh, he, was, he said to her, you know, I think it's all right to peek your head around a corner a little bit. The idea being the scripture doesn't really say, but you kind of peek around a little bit and you let your mind go down there and see. He said, just don't go running up the block, is what he said to her. And, and I think that's what we're doing here. This is a situation we don't necessarily know, and both of those could be certainly valid. They don't contradict something else somewhere else in the scripture here. But it helps it, I think, brings it to life for us. Like there, I could have been sitting there next to that guy and going through that same thing. So... I think that's pretty cool, Linz. All right, so let's go on to the next story. Let's see if we have time here. Oh, we're getting close. All right, Jesus calls Levi. Now, your version may say Matthew, if you have a title to yours. It says, now, after this, he went out, and he saw a tax collector named Levi 
So we have a fisherman, a man with leprosy, a bunch of Pharisees, a paralytic. Now we have a tax collector. And it says, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the first thing I take notice here is the idea of a tax collector. Tax collectors were sort of, uh, well, they're compared to sinners. Sinners were things like prostitutes and people that everybody knew, all their bad people over there or something like that. Uh, And so the tax collectors, not only were they kind of lumped there, they were also seen to to be seen as sellouts to the Jewish people. They worked for the Roman government, uh, and they stuck it. They were the man. They stuck it to uh, their fellow Jewish citizens. They collected taxes. The Roman government essentially said, look, you need to get 15 bucks from every single person. They could charge whatever they wanted over the top to keep for themselves, and a nice tax collector might charge 20 bucks or something. Like, I need to live on something here. But most of them charged 100 bucks. And they ripped the people off, and everybody knew it. But what are they going to do? The guy's got a man with a sword standing behind him. I've got to pay my taxes. Kind of like a loan shark. Yeah, they're terrible. And so nobody liked the tax collectors. They were sort of outcasts uh, in the society. They were Jews. But don't come talk to me. You know, you know who you are, and you know what you've done. All these things. And so here is this tax collector... And I'm very impressed by what it says in verse 27. It says, after this, he went out and he saw a tax collector. It wasn't that the tax collector ran to Jesus and said, hey, is there anything you can do for me? I know I'm a louse of a guy, but is there anything you can do? But Jesus saw him and took notice of him, which I really value. Because I suspect that this tax collector had already determined, look, nobody likes me and I don't like anybody either but I got a nice house and I got a nice chariot and I don't care anymore. And I'm not going to go to this religious guy because he's not going to accept me. But Jesus sees him and he takes notice of him. And so he goes and he finds this particular guy. And I suspect there are people in our lives that are convinced that God wants nothing to do with them. And the only way that they're going to come into a relationship with him if we go to them and say, you know what, you can be forgiven. And I'm not really any worse off than you, or I wasn't uh, less of a sinner or more of a sinner than you, and God forgave me. And we we have to see those people. So Jesus takes notice of this tax collector sitting at the tax booth, and he says to him, follow me. You're invited into the inner circle. Come. And it says the man leaves everything, and he rises up, and he follows him. And quite honestly, that's what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Christ, is leaving everything behind. And here this man does that. We saw Peter and James and John, that they did that. So he says, uh, leaving everything, he went and he followed him. Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. So this is a seedy crowd. And uh, what's his name? Levi decides to throw a big party for them at great cost to himself. Because why? Why does he throw this great feast? I think three reasons. One is he wants to honor the Lord. You know what? You're in town. You've got no home here. Uh, you need to eat somewhere. And I'm going to throw you a big banquet because you're pretty awesome. And thank you so much for all you've done in my life. So that's number one. 
Second one is, this is almost like his public declaration, I'm with this guy now, you know, and I love God, and I don't care who knows it. I'm throwing a great feast. And then I think a very simple thing is, he wants his friends to come to know this guy too. And so he opens up the door to them. Would you mind coming to my house and telling all of my friends? I remember when Ravi Zacharias was here last April or so, or this April I guess it was, not very long ago, um, one of his supporters happens to live in this area, in the Princeton area, financial supporter and prayer supporter and all that. And he's a, a man also of Hindu descent like, uh, like Ravi was. And uh, so he said to him, hey, would you come to my house and talk to uh, my friends that are Hindus? And 12, 15 people, you know, open, he opened up his house to a big feast and Ravi came and, and shared with this family. And Ravi speaks to thousands of people, but this man said, would you just come and talk to my friends? I want them to come to know this relationship. And it sort of reminds me here. And so here Levi, he gathers up his tax collector friends and others who maybe wouldn't have had an audience. They certainly weren't going to be where all those Pharisees and teachers of the law were just in that previous section. And so uh, he has a dinner there. Pharisees, though, they take notice of this. Maybe they're outside. Maybe they're observing things. Maybe they were following, and suddenly Jesus is walking with the tax collector, and now there's 50 tax collectors, and next thing you know, he's going in the house of a tax collector. So they begin to grumble, and they pull aside some of Jesus' disciples, and they say, why does your uh, master... Why does he eat and drink, or why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overheard it. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those that are sick. I mean, if you go to the doctors when you're feeling great, my doctor keeps calling me to come in for a physical. And I'm like, dude, I'm fine. Leave me alone. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't want to pay the money to, for you to tell me you look good, you know, and, or whatever. And so I'm not going to go to a doctor. But when I'm sick, I go to the doctor. Sure, I go to the doctor. So those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the sick one are the sinners. The righteous ones, or maybe we should rephrase it, the self-righteous ones, the ones who are, that think they're righteous. Now, I should probably go to a doctor because I'm yes. getting... Thank you. And I'm, I'm getting older. You want to pay my copay? No, I'm just teasing. Oh, thank you. No, please don't. Um, oh, you're going to pass my hat. So, uh, because, you know, you start to get to a certain age where something could be developing and they could find it and heal it, you know, and they say, look, you, you had cancer forming and we could have dealt with this, but you didn't come for 10 years and now, you know, you're in trouble kind of thing. So, I should go and I'll go. I promise you all that I will go to the doctor here. You're going to check. Yeah. I think we did. <laughs> I think we did. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. So anyway, I will, I promise. Now, anyhow, um, the point is, Jesus won't do a self-righteous person any good. That seems almost strange to say, like, oh, should you say that? But that's the reality. Because they, they don't want what he has to offer. And in order for him to, to do what they need, what he has come to do, they need to recognize their need. They need to come in a desperate state. And it's the self-righteous that will refuse to do that. And so Jesus essentially is saying, I love hanging out with these tax collectors. I love hanging out with these girls that were prostitutes. Because their heart is so open. And when I tell them that God loves them, 
and He's willing to forgive them, and He's willing to cleanse them, and He's willing to give them a new name, and He's willing to call them the children of God. Their hearts, are, they just melt right in front of me. And you guys over there, you're making excuses for this and that, and you're telling me how great and wonderful you are, and you pray this many times, and you're just not ready to receive what God wants to offer. You know, and, and in our, for us, we say, you know, I'll pray for you, that God does break your heart. You know, so he loves these folks, and I just think it's great. And, and I personally, I think, I love believers. I think they're awesome and, and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, but sometimes people come to our church from other churches and stuff like that, and they move to the area, and it's great, and I love them. But what I love is when a person has never gone to church in their life, or maybe it's been many, many, many years, or they don't have a relationship with the Lord, and then they come, and they start hearing, and suddenly they say, could I be saved somehow too? You know, would that be possible? Man, it's just how awesome it is, you know. So a person that needs to repent, realize they can, and, and God does a healing work in their hearts. It's good news. Well, I don't think we're going to make it to the end of the chapter today. Um, this next section, there is a good amount there that we would need to talk about. So uh, we'll come back to that next week. We'll pick up in uh, verse 33. Uh, let's pray. And we'll close out. Father, we thank you so much for the examples that we've seen this evening. Lord, it, it almost seems like in, in this chapter that uh, Jesus sort of took the gloves off and he just let it go. And uh, people are being healed and people are being called and amazing miracles are happening here. And um, people are responding and they're following after you and leaving everything. And Lord, it's just so exciting to see. And Lord, what's... Uh, What's amazing for us to consider is that you continue to work in this way. You continue to call people to yourself and radically uh, change people's lives. And Lord, even in our own lives, you continue to speak to us and call us to uh, leave it all and to come follow you. I think of that Stephen Curtis Chapman song that there were empty nets lying there at the water's edge. They didn't fully understand, but they knew that you had called to them and they answered the call. And so, Father, we want to be people that do the exact same thing. So we pray that you would do a work within our hearts. You'd put your finger on some things that are hindering us from following hard after you. And, Lord, that you'd give us really the courage and the discipline and, and all the things that would be needed there to say, you know what, it's, it's not even worth it. I give it up and I follow you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the time to gather with the saints and uh, just to be mutually edified uh, by one another. We thank you for the encouragement of that and pray you would bless the rest of our week until we gather again. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.